WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long from Nouveau News Weekly, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto, made possible in part by the Indianapolis Foundation, celebrating over 100 years of service. Indie Jazz Fest 2017 is underway, and you can go to IndieJazzFest.net to catch the full artist lineup. On tonight's show, I'll be speaking with two performers featured on this year's Jazz Fest lineup. Up first, I'll be talking to the Cuban-born jazz drummer Ignacio Baroa. And later on in the program, I'll be speaking with electronic music producer Taylor McFerrin. Ignacio Baroa's performance at Indie Jazz Fest is a centennial salute to jazz great Dizzy Gillespie. This October marks the 100th anniversary of Dizzy Gillespie's birth. Dizzy was one of the pioneers of Latin jazz in the United States. So let's kick off tonight's show with Dizzy's 1954 recording of the Afro-Cuban jazz classic, Manteca. Thank you. 
I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. We just heard Dizzy Gillespie's 1954 recording of the Afro-Cuban jazz masterpiece, Manteca. The Cuban jazz drummer Ignacio Barroa spent 10 years playing drums in Dizzy Gillespie's band. And he'll be here in Indianapolis paying tribute to Dizzy as part of the 2017 Indianapolis Jazz Fest. Ignacio Barroa grew up in Cuba during a time when jazz and rock and roll were considered musical contraband by the Castro regime. So in 1980, when Barroa had a chance to leave the island during the Mariel Boatlift, he immigrated to the United States and began his quick ascent to jazz fame in America. We're going to talk about all that and more tonight with Ignacio, and he joins me now via telephone. It's a great honor and privilege to speak with you. I saw you perform in New York maybe 10 years ago, and it always left a big impression on me, and I've been a big fan of yours since. So thank you for taking time to speak today. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, sir, I know you were born into a, a musical family, and, and your father played violin in some of the biggest uh, charanga orchestras in Cuba during the 1950s, including the great Fajardo y su Estrellas. You initially followed in your father's path, right? You started, you didn't start playing drums, you started studying violin. Is that true? My, my first instrument was the violin. I started playing the violin, mainly because my mother, my mother wanted me to be uh, like my father, a violinist. Did you want to play the drums? Did you just play the violin to please your parents? or was That, that... was exactly the situation. I, I played, the, I went to school to study the violin to please my mom. This is the story. My mom wanted me to be like my dad. So when I was around eight, nine years old, I, uh, uh, she gave me a, a little violin and I started taking lessons from my dad. But uh, my mom passed away when I was 10 years old. So uh, my father, that at the time, he was one of the violinists of the uh, radio and TV orchestra in Havana or, or in Cuba. He used to take me every day to the recording, the orchestra recording, and I always was hanging out with the rhythm section. Why? Because uh, my father one day brought an album, and he brought two albums after my mom passed away. He brought an album by Nat King Cole Trio, no drums. So it was Nat King Cole who, who got me into jazz. When I heard Nat King Cole, something struck me that I can't explain. And when I heard Nat King Cole, I knew that jazz was the music of my passion. And then a few days later, or maybe the same day, I don't remember, I heard another album by the Glenn Miller Big Band with Gene Krupa on front. And when I heard that album, I, so I said to myself, I want to be a drummer. Nothing Cole got me into jazz, and Gene Krupa made me finally switch from the violin to the drums. And, and I've heard you were also listening, you were a jazz fan, as you mentioned, but you were also listening to rock and roll as a young person, right? Is that true? I was also a huge fan. The Beatles changed my life. Yes, I, I, I used to, and I am, and I will be until I die, a fan of the Beatles. <laughs> Yes, I, I love them too. And I always read, and I don't know how true this is, you know, there's a lot of propaganda going back and forth between yeah. the United States and Cuba. And we mm -hmm. always read here that rock and roll music and the music of the Beatles was outlawed in Cuba, and you could get in a lot of trouble for having these records. Is that true? Or That is, the, that is true. Yeah. That is the true, and a lot of people have been trying to hide that. It's like some people are trying to say that the Holocaust never happened. That is the truth. That was for my generation, our generation, the, the generation that lived in Cuba during the 60, 68 through 1980, 
jazz music was kind of prohibited. And during the 50s, 50s if you got caught walking on the street with an album, a Dizzy Gillespie album, a Rolling Stones album, a Beatles album, Ella Fitzgerald album, you will end up in jail. Why? Because at that time, the Cuban Revolution thought that that was a way of promoting the enemy. Everybody is entitled to make mistakes. Later on, 40 years later or 30 something years later, when the Soviet Union crumbled, they were forced to change the route. So yes, it was prohibited and you could get in trouble if you, if your neighbor will hearing you listening to jazz. It was something very, very stupid, but the process created that stupidity. So it was something you would kind of sneak away to your room and listen to the records real quietly. Exactly. Yeah. At some point, the problem, the situation with the United States was so heavy that music suffered because of that. So playing anything from the United States was promoting the music of the enemy. Mm. And that's something that new Cuban generations, they don't know about that. But it really happened. Our generation suffered a lot during that period, that it was not always like they have seen now. Now you even go to Cuba and they have a jazz festival every December. As a matter of fact, the first time I went back to Cuba after I left in 1980, it was in 2002, I went to the Havana Jazz Festival to play with Gonzalo Rubalcaba's trio. That was my return to Cuba. That was the first time I went to Cuba since I left. So yes, it happened. That is true. It's not, it's not that someone has been trying to butt mouth the Cuban government. Uh, yes. I appreciate that's you. Yeah, I appreciate you setting the record straight on that. It's uh, mm -hmm. that's wild, but I appreciate you sharing that. professional career in music, I understand, in 1970, and, and throughout your life, you've been involved in really extraordinary uh, musical activities. And if you don't mind, I wanted to ask about a couple of the, the records you played on and some of the musicians you played with during your time in Cuba. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I understand you were part of this uh, Nueva Trova movement, and you played on uh, some important records in that scene. How did you get involved in that scene? And can you talk a little bit about your, your activities of during course, that time? Yeah. I, I began my career playing with a jazz group. It, it, this is, this is uh, something that is uh, controversial. There used to be a pianist in Cuba. His name was Felipe Dulcides. And Felipe Dulcides was a pianist who was a political prisoner. He got in trouble at early days of the revolution, and he served three years as a political prisoner. When he got out, uh, they allowed him to put his band together, but uh, they put him in a place um, called Varadero Beach. It's a place that is like two hours from Havana, or it used to be two hours from Havana back then, because now I heard they made a beautiful expressway and you can be in Varadero, I think, like in an hour or so. But anyway, Felipe Dulcides, they put him on the ostracism in Varadero Beach. When I got out from the army, uh, someone told me that he was looking for a drummer, and I went to play with Felipe Dulcides. 
it was a type of band that we play a lot of music from he he was he he was a huge fan of Bill Evans, uh, George Shearing, the English mm. pianist, the, the blind English pianist, and we used to play almost every style of music from samba. We used to play tunes from Blood Twin Tears, but uh, the reason why we were allowed to do that was because it was in a place where just the people that live in that town in that town and tourists will see us. We never did a TV show. We would never play on the radio, uh, so forth and so on. So I spent three years with that band, and one good thing about Varadero is that it, it is a place that is very, very close to Key West. And we were able to listen with no interference, with no problem, almost every day, all the radio, all the radio stations from Key West, Miami, Washington, D.C., so it was great being in Baradero, playing that music and listening to that music every day. From there, a guy that used to be the piano player of that group that used to back up Silvio Rodriguez and Pablo Milanes. Uh, a great Cuban pianist and a great influence on the development of Afro-Cuban jazz or Latin jazz, like everybody call it nowadays, Emiliano Salvador. He invited me to be part of the group because the, the drummer that they had at that time, they fired him. And Emiliano asked me to go there. So I went there because that group was the original idea of that group that was that that group would make the music of all the documentaries and films in Cuba. That was the, the, the group used to belong to the film department in Cuba, which it was called ICAI, I-C-A-I-C. So the group was called Group of ICAI or Yes, Yes, like G-E-S. Experimentational group, experiment, experimentational sound group, something like that. G E S. Yeah, Grupo de Experimentación Sonora, right? That was the name Deli of the group. Kai. Yeah. yeah. But we also used to play instrumental music, and in the 70s, that band also was allowed to play song, fusion music, jazz and fusion, but always with the Afro-Cuban element. And we weren't allowed to play too many concerts. We, it, it was a band that was there, but uh, we were and we wasn't. Yeah, okay, I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you... so, oh, I mean, in correct English, we, we were and we weren't. When I moved to Havana from Baradero in 75, I became the first call for the only studio in Cuba, a grain. And I used to do, I did 90, 90.5% of all the recordings between 1975 until 19, or until 79, until wow. December 79. I was the drummer in Cuba. In Maestro, you, as you alluded earlier, you came to the United States in 1980 as part of the Mariel boat lift in Cuba. And you, you've said that the main reason why you left Cuba is because you wanted to be a jazz drummer. Well, that's the main reason in a sense. Yeah. What I mean with that is that if Cuba would have been 
a, a country like Switzerland, Mexico, or Germany, Italy, Chile, Argentina, meaning that Cuba would have not a dictatorship, I was coming anyway because of my passion for jazz. The main reason why I left is because I didn't want to, I didn't want to waste my life living on a, on, on a dictatorship, on the, a dictatorship. I was coming here anyway because my passion for jazz and because I wanted to find my place in the, in the jazz world. So, but uh, if we're gonna be, okay, what is the main reason why you came to the United States? I was looking for freedom. I want to get the hell out of there. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. If you're just tuning in, my guest tonight is the jazz drummer Ignacio Baroa. Ignacio will be performing here in Indianapolis as part of Indie Jazz Fest 2017. You can catch him at the Jazz Kitchen Wednesday, September 20th for a centennial salute to Dizzy Gillespie. In the background now, we're listening to The Search by McCoy Tyner off his 1981 album, The Legend of the Hour. And that track features our guest tonight, Ignacio Barroa, on drums. Ignacio recorded this album about a year after he first arrived in the United States. Let's return to my conversation with Ignacio Barroa. Yeah. One thing that amazes me about your career here in this country is, you know, you left and you arrived in 1980 and you immediately got on the radar of, of the biggest icons in jazz. And I understand that uh, the great Mario Bausa was very important in kind of introducing you to figures like Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah. How did you get so involved in the jazz scene so quickly after arriving? Well, I'm going to tell you. Yes, sir. The word got around that a guy, a drummer from Cuba, was in New York, and I went to I went to a rehearsal. A Dominican musician invited me to his rehearsal, and Mario Bausa used to live very close to this guy, Mario Rivera, who used to play for Tito Puente. He played for Tito Puente for many years. So Mario Rivera invited me to his rehearsal. I was watching the rehearsal, and, uh, and when they took a break, he invited me to jam with the band. Andy Gonzalez was in the band, Jerry Gonzalez was in the band, uh, Hilton Ruiz was in the band, Steve Touré was, was in the band. His band was called the Salsa Refugees. And when I started playing with them, they enjoyed what I did. And Mario went to his kitchen and called Mario Bausa on the phone, and Mario came to see me play. I knew Mario Bausa by name, but I didn't know him physically. So I saw a guy who sat down in a, in, a, in a sofa and was watching me, watching me. And by the way, Mario said, Mario right there on the spot, Mario Rivera fired the drummer that he had hired and gave me the gig. Wow. Now, keep in mind, Kyle, that when I jumped out of my boat on Key West, I didn't know the meaning of yes. Hmm. So I didn't know what was going on. And then suddenly I see that the drummer... He got mad, he put a mat, he, he turned off his face and grabbed his stick back and left. And I asked Mario Rivera in Spanish, what happened? And he told me, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, you're going to play the game. So he fired the guy. Hmm. At the end of the rehearsal, Mario Bausa introduced himself and I said, yeah, yes, I know who you are. So he said, I'm going to become, I'm going to be your mentor here in New York. If you play... Afro-Cuban music, you play straight ahead, you play samba, and on top of that, you read music, you're going to do good in this scene. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to Chico Farri, who, who used to do a lot of recordings for jingles recordings, 
And but what he, I said to me, I'm going to take you to the union because you have to belong to the union. What he didn't told me is that when he went back to his apartment, he called a busy Gillespie mm. and told busy Gillespie about me. So Mario Bausa and I had a great relationship. He took me to the union. He started recommending me for gigs. And Mario Rivera also recommended me for gigs. And one night in December, so that happened, everything that I just told you happened between August, October, November. And one night in December, Mario Bausa called me and he asked me, do you want to play with DC Gillespie tonight? And I thought it was a joke. I said, hey, Mario, come on. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 I'm serious. DC Gillespie needs a drummer tonight. And I told him about you months ago. And he just called me. He needed a drummer and he asked me, about you. Are you available? And I say, yes, I'm available. He said, well, dress nice, put your drums on a cab, and go down to Manhattan. The name of the club is Fat Tuesday, and here is the address. So I said, well, Mario, I'm going to meet you there, right? Because uh, I don't speak English. How am I going to communicate with Dizzy? And he said to me, it is to call out there and watching TV. That's the problem. <laughs> so I called Jerry Gonzalez, my friends Jerry and Andy and Jerry finally got a car went to pick me up I used to live in the Bronx like them and took me to the club he served me as a translator and this gave, gave me some instruction we went to the stage and we played the gig but I would tell people if when I would have arrived to that club I would have not played my ass off this Gillespie wouldn't call me again uh, at the next summer when his drummer left and the first thing he did was call Mario Bausa and tell Mario Bausa, tell the Cuban drummer that I'm looking for the drummer and if he wants the gig, he can have it. And you're here in Indianapolis for Jazz Fest celebrating the 100th anniversary of Dizzy Gillespie's birth. And yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Because Dizzy Gillespie was my mentor. He was my, he was my friend. He was my friend. I spent 10 years with Dizzy Gillespie. So we, thank God, we became friends. He was one of my closest friends. He was like my dad. So I'm happy that uh, I got the opportunity of going to the festival um, and play and pay tribute to his music. That's what we're going to do. Sure. And, and I'm curious, you know, you risked a lot coming to the United States, and within a couple years, you're suddenly performing with one of the biggest icons in jazz history. And I'm curious just how that felt at the time, joining his band and, and traveling the world, playing with one of the greatest uh, figureheads the genre has ever produced and one of the greatest musicians the genre has ever produced. Well, how do you think? I, I, I always tell people, it felt, uh, to me, many times I thought I was... I was living a dream because you know how it can be. I remember one day a friend of mine who's a painter asked me that question and I, my response was, man, could you imagine what it would mean to you if Pablo Picasso would have been alive and you received a call to be part of Picasso's team? Let's say that Picasso has a team where he paints with them every day, so forth and so on, and then suddenly you get a call to be part of Pablo Picasso's team. That's what it meant to me being Dizzy Gillespie's drummer. And most importantly, I understood the role I was playing because I was a Latino and I was playing trap drums for Dizzy Gillespie. So I was, I was an example for musicians in different countries who were thinking at that time, can I go to New York and made it? And I was demonstrated to everybody, yes, you can. If you are prepared, yes, you can. Because I'm coming from a tiny island in the Caribbean with no opportunities to play jazz. And I arrived to the biggest country in the world and became Dizzy Gillespie's drummer, that a lot of ignorant people think that I was the conguero. I was Dizzy Gillespie's drummer, and I played drums for him for 10 years, not conga drums, drum trap drums. So man, I felt like uh, I made it. 
it was big and it's still big for me. That's how I feel. It's, I feel like uh, I made it. It's quite, it's quite an accomplishment, and I serve as an the one of the, the most important thing for me because when I said to you I made it, it's personal. It's, it's the struggle with Ignacio Barroa. Okay. Every, every day when I wake up and I see myself in the mirror, I say, hey, I made it. Mission accomplished. But the other thing which is most important to me is I have served as an inspiration to other people in those countries, in any country in the world, who have thought for a minute, should I go to the United States and try to make it? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And I... I and, and, That's the most important thing for me, uh, being an inspiration to other people. mentioned playing with great jazz icons and you know the list of, of people you've recorded and performed with is really long and there's one in particular I wanted to ask you about obviously I'm calling you from Indianapolis where you'll be performing at the Jazz Fest and you've played I understand with one of our great jazz icons uh, Freddie Hubbard the great trumpet player Freddie Hubbard what do you remember about Freddie Hubbard playing with him <laughs> listen the greatest trumpet player I have ever played with. Freddie Howard is my favorite trumpet player. And you can put that. Wow, that's Dizzy huge. Gillespie, yeah. Dizzy Gillespie was the father of bebop. He was a creator and he was my friend, my father, my everything. If I have to pick one trumpet player that I love playing with him, Freddie Hubbard. That was an amazing experience, Freddie as well as Dizzy. What happened is that Freddie, Freddie is more, is closer to my generation. When I started playing with Dizzy Gillespie, I was 26 and Dizzy Gillespie was 65. Wow, yeah. Huge you gap. Know, when yeah. Dizzy Gillespie was famous in 1957, I was four years old, and Dizzy Gillespie already had a lot of rec a few recordings. Dizzy started his career in the 40s, but so I was more attuned with Freddie. Freddie was more modern. You know, I'm not saying who's best or not, but my favorite trumpet player is Freddie Hubbard. Maestro, before uh, I'm going to end by asking about your new album, but before before I ask you about that album, I wanted to mention your uh, 2014 album, Heritage and Passion, and that you do a really interesting uh, version of an Ornette Coleman tune on that record and mix it with Ray Barreto. Tell me what inspired <laughs> you. That's such an unusual, and but it works so well. It's an unusual combination, but it really works well. Tell us about creating that track. <laughs> Man, that was, that was simple. Uh, We were rehearsing. I was rehearsing with Luis Perdomo, who played piano on that album, uh, along with Gonzalo Rubalcaba, and Ricky Rodriguez, who played a few tunes on bass. And we were rehearsing, and he wanted, I wanted to play When Will the Blues Live? Mm. But coincidentally, before we started playing, we were talking about Ray Barreto. Perdomo was Ray Barreto's pianist. Ricky played with Barreto for a while. And I was a huge fan of Ray Barreto. And Ray Barreto was a good friend. He was a, such a lovely person. And while we were playing, when will the blues leave? 
I sang. That's a tune from Barreto called Yo Vine Pachar Candela. And I told Perdomo, man, let's make something, let's insert that so we can play When With The Blues Leave and mix it up with Vine Pachar Candela. So you got the story. That's amazing, yeah. <laughs> it works so well <laughs> together, yeah. <laughs> My guest tonight is jazz drummer Ignacio Barroa. He's performing at Indie Jazz Fest 2017. You can see the full lineup for Jazz Fest online at IndieJazzFest.net. From his 2014 album Heritage and Passion, this is Ignacio Barroa with When Will the Blues Leave? I'm Kyle Long, and you're tuned in to Cultural Manifesto.
I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. My guest tonight is jazz drummer Ignacio Barroa. He's performing at this year's Indie Jazz Fest. You can go online to catch the full Jazz Fest schedule at IndieJazzFest.net. We just heard a track from Ignacio's 2014 album Heritage and Passion, and Ignacio has a new album out titled Straight Ahead from Havana, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that now. Those tunes are melodies that I used to listen when I, during my youth in Cuba. Hmm. Most of the tunes are famous boleros. Hmm. Boleros is a version of the Amer- American ballad. Most of those tunes are boleros, and this, is, this was my intention. Well, thank you so much, sir, for taking time to answer all my questions today. It's been an honor speaking with you, and, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to your show here in Indianapolis this September honoring Dizzy Gillespie. I'm excited to see what you have planned. Are you going to go? Yes, sir. I'll be there. All right, Kyle, man. So listen, thank you very much. Yes, sir. And I hope that um, you make people to go to the Jazz Kitchen. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Off his new album, Straight Ahead from Havana, this is Ignacio Barroa with Druma Negrita.
Salon, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. Taylor McFerrin will literally close out this year's Indie Jazz Fest as the last act at the Sunday Block Party. McFerrin goes on at 11.45 p.m. inside the Jazz Kitchen. And I can't think of a more poetic way to end this year's Jazz Festival than to nod to the future possibilities of jazz music, which has shape-shifted through 100 years of musical evolution and revolution. Taylor McFerrin grew up a hip-hop head inside a jazz house. Taylor's father is the famed jazz vocal wizard Bobby McFerrin, and Taylor's music both reflects and challenges that background, mixing live instrumentation, samples, and beats into a thoroughly individual sound. It's no surprise that Taylor was signed to Brain Feeder, a record label that's home to forward-thinking artists like Thundercat, Flying Lotus, and Kumasi Washington. And Taylor McFerrin joins us now via phone. Yeah, thank you again, man. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your work. And I actually first uh, became a fan of yours in 2006 when your debut EP, Broken Vibes, came out. And that kind of coincided with when I began DJing. And I used to play the track Georgia all the time in my DJ sets back then. And at the time, I knew nothing about who you were or how this music was made. But I subsequently learned that all the rhythms on that EP were created uh, through your own skills as a beatboxer. So I, I wanted to ask about you know, the role of beatboxing in your music, because it has a pretty significant role, right? It did at that point a lot more. Um, there was a time when I was really trying to, to be up there as like one of the better beatboxers. Um, actually, you know what, I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> I never really was competitive about beatboxing at all, but um, it's something that was just a really big part of my live show. In high school, I really just wanted to make make beats, like be a hip hop producer. Um, and beatboxing was always something I just did, you know, in my group of friends. I was a designated beatboxer if there was ever like a freestyle or anything like that. Um, it was kind of something I I did as, as a habit. Um, never something that I like sat down and tried to perfect or anything. But when I ended up moving to New York when I was 19, um, it ended up being my introduction to being a performer because there were, there was a, a few bands that I would uh, play out with and I realized that I could beatbox like on stage and have it be a thing that people were into. <laughs> Whereas my whole life up to that point, I really was just kind of a, a shy kid making beats. So it kind of introduced me to the stage when I did that that Broken Vibes EP, that was kind of the height of me, you know, beatboxing a lot on stage, and it just was like a natural way for me to build rhythms um, on a track. I, I, I did kind of like layer my beatboxing on the tracks in a way to try to make them sound more like production and less like beatboxing. So I think it was cool because I never, when that EP came out, I never felt like people listen to it as a beatbox project, even though all the drums were beatboxing. I, I felt like that was kind of an accomplishment for me at the time. Yeah, I guess I, I recognized that there was some element of that, but I didn't kind of realize how much of a foundation in the creation of it it was. And there's some pretty sophisticated beatboxing on there. You have a samba track, essentially kind of like a bossa nova track on there, and, and did some really cool stuff with the with the with that form of making music. Is that still something that you incorporate into your live shows, the beatboxing aspect? I usually do one beatbox part, one song. Since a lot of times I'm doing a straight up solo show, I try to, as the show goes on, kind of start tracks in different ways so that it it stays interesting. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I've been to a lot of shows with electronic musicians and producers and there can be a disconnect with the audience because it feels like they're just kind of pressing buttons and you're not quite sure what they're doing. So usually in my show, one of the first two or three songs, I, I do a, a beatbox thing with either building a track around it or playing samples in one hand uh, while I beatbox to kind of create a live song. That way, it just kind of helps break the ice with the audience. Sometimes it, it's like the best part of the show, and then sometimes it's, you know, a lot of my shows are very improvised, so sometimes that beatbox section can kind of turn the tide of the show to being 
really hype show depending on the venue. Sure. But, uh, yeah, it's still always a part of my set. And you mentioned that uh, you know you kind of your entryway into making music to an extent was uh, producing hip hop beats. Did you kind of visualize yourself as becoming like a a RZA or a DJ Premier or someone who kind of made beats for rappers to rap on, or did you always want to do something that kind of had value on its own as an instrumental? Yeah, I really just wanted to be a hip hop producer in high school. Um, it's funny, there's. A lot of subtle things happened that probably opened me up to to have taken a few different directions. And one was, I didn't know, when I first decided I wanted to do it, I didn't, I wasn't really up on the internet and researching stuff. The internet was relatively new. When I wanted to make beats, I just went to Guitar Center and was like, what was the newest beat machine to make beats that I could obsess over? And they convinced me to get a Roland, um, like the SB808, which was like a, a sampler at the time that really wasn't that great for making hip hop beats. It like had a lot of sample time, but I really should have got an MPC. If I would have got an MPC, I probably would have really gone more in the hip hop direction, like over my career. But um, because that that machine is kind of like the definitive beat making machine, and so I ended up chopping up all these samples that were more meant to just be played live with like a live band, which really opened me up as I was a performer later with bands. Taylor, as I mentioned, you work with the label Brain Feeder, which is home to artists like Kamasi Washington, Thundercat, Flying Lotus, and so many other artists that work in this space where jazz, hip-hop, and electronic music kind of freely circulate within their sound. And I'm curious, uh, on the occasion of your performance here at Jazz Fest, where you see your own music existing within the continuum of jazz. I have a hard time saying that I'm a jazz musician because um you know, I never really focused on mastering an instrument in a jazz context. Um, you know, like keys players, you know, they put in over 10,000 hours easy of just being able to be a decent jazz player. Um, I couldn't really sit in on a jazz gig on keys and be like, hey guys, let's do this standard and this key and let's go and then go on nuts. I'm the, the part of jazz that's kind of ingrained in me is, you know, I grew up around a ton of jazz and improvisation through my dad. Um, and then the music that really got me interested in music at all was um, more of the fusion era where it was Herbie Hancock and George Duke and also when Stevie Wonder, they were all, they all started using like <clears throat> Moog synthesizers and Arp Odyssey and all those early um, analog synths, kind of that gritty analog synth sound and effects and Fender Rhodes, just that era uh, of sound and sonics is what really got me into music. You know, almost all the hip hop that I loved growing up on um, were producers that were sampling that era of jazz. So it's really the sonics of that area, of that era that has influenced me the most. and. I spent my whole life trying to like collect analog synths and, and getting my studio to the point where I could have that type of vibe. And, and Taylor, you're going to be performing here in Indianapolis at the Indianapolis Jazz Fest on Saturday, September 23. And I'm curious, so what configuration of your live show will we, we be seeing here? Um, it's going to be it's going to be a straight up solo show, but I am going to be trying out some new things. Um, There'll be some tunes from Early Riser. There'll be a couple of new things, and there'll be a lot of improvisation in the middle. Um, I'll have a Fender Rhodes and, uh, you know, my synthesizers and beat machines and stuff. And, you know, each show is a little bit different. And a lot of times I, I kind of change the vibe of the show based on the room and the audience. So it's always hard for me to say exactly how it's going to go. But um, it's going to be a, a straight-up solo show. 
Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Taylor. All right, man. Yeah, take care. Nice talking to you. My guest has been 2017 Indie Jazz Fest artist Taylor McFerrin. And you can go to taylormcfarren.com to purchase music or learn more about his work. Let's listen to a song from Taylor's 2014 album, Early Riser. This is The Antidote, featuring Napalm of Hiatus Coyote on vocals. That's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto, made possible in part by the Indianapolis Foundation, celebrating over 100 years of service.